There we go. All right. A few more of you woke up. All right. Um, well, a couple quick announcements here before we uh, get into God's Word. Um, first of all, today is the, uh, is the beginning of the spring session of small groups. Uh, if you are not in a small group, okay, uh, if you're not in a small group, you need to get in a small group. In fact, I'll invite you to mine, okay? In fact, you're invited today to join us at 1230 at my house. Need directions, see me. Uh, we would love to have you. Uh, we have lunch together. We, uh, we study God's Word together. We pray together. We do life together. That is part of the point of being in a small group. Uh, because believe it or not, you cannot come to maturity in Christ, I do not believe, by simply showing up at church once a week and reading your Bible on your own. Can't do it. You're going to need to be in community with other people that you can walk with and that you can, um, that you can do life together with, that you can pray with, that you can practice some of these biblical one another's uh, that are there in your Bible. Things like love one another, bear one another's burdens. Uh, because you, if you get close enough to people, you're going to need to, uh, you're going to be in conflict. You're going to need to resolve that. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know, you're going to need to be able to do these things. And uh, if you uh, are simply coming on Sunday morning, you're never going to develop or at least it's going to take a very, very long time before you're going to develop close enough relationships with other people to be able to do those things. So we encourage every person who's part of Chillicothe Bible Church in whatever capacity to be part of a small group. And like I say, if you don't have one, come to mine. We are happy to have you, okay? Um, so encourage that. Uh, seriously, if you don't want to be in mine, uh, if that's too intimidating, but you want to be... Um, in someone else's small group, we can also sign you up for that, okay? And we'd be happy to get you into, into one of those. Also, uh, Mary Lou Drilling spoke to me this morning uh, before Sunday school. She is having brain surgery on January the 25th uh, at OSF. She doesn't have a lot of details in terms of time and so forth, but she did ask us to pray and, uh, and so we as the people of God need to do that. Uh, we also need to thank God this morning. Um, Mary Lou Drilling, the person right behind you. <laughs> okay. Um, she is, uh, she's having surgery for that. And then we also need to praise God and give Him thanks for um, the way that our finances took a major step forward in December uh, we have uh, we've actually gotten into the black uh, on spending versus expenses, uh, which is a very very good thing. I uh, still have some challenges ahead of us, but um, but we certainly want to thank God for His provision, and, and then we want to ask the Lord to lead us into His Word. So let's pray together. God, our heavenly Father, we do thank you that you provide all things that we need for life and godliness, that you provide us with your word, with your Holy Spirit to transform us with the church community that we can be part of, that we can rub elbows with people who are also moving toward Jesus and learn to love Jesus together. 
and to, uh, and to practice loving one another in a community that one day we will be part of with all the saints in glory. And Father, we, uh, we thank you for these things. We thank you that, uh, that you provide for us the ability to talk to you and to, and to know that you are there and you hear and you answer and you move, just as you have done with the Rosetto family and Rick's uh, health. Uh, Father, we lift up our sister Mary Lou Drilling to you. Uh, we pray, Father, that, that you would bring healing through this surgery, that she would have relief from pain finally after a very long period of suffering, and that, Father, um, you would give the surgeon skill. Uh, Father, we know that all of our gifting and all of our talents, all of our skills come from you. And so, Father, we pray that you would guard the surgeon's hand, that, that he would do what brings healing and that there would be no complications as a result. And, Father, we, we pray as we open your word together uh, that it would enter into our hearts and that we would be transformed by thinking your thoughts after you and putting them into our lives. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this year, whether you know it or not, 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. On October 31st, 1517, uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door and touched off the Protestant Reformation. And he started that because he read Romans 117, where it says, the righteous will live by faith. And as he began to study that, he began to have an idea that, wait a minute, maybe all of the things I've been doing to try to earn my way to heaven aren't actually the way. And he began to study and he began to read people like Augustine, who told him, based on Augustine's own conversion from reading Romans, that the righteous live by faith, not by their works. By works of righteousness, no one is justified before God. But we are only justified before God on the basis of our faith. And then as a result of that, we produce good works. And then a couple hundred years after Luther, there was another man you may have heard of, a guy named John Wesley. John Wesley was ordained in the Anglican Church, uh, and he uh, became a, an ordained gospel preacher, got sent to America to evangelize the Indian tribes, and when he got back, he realized that he does not know Jesus, whom he proclaimed to the Indians. And he went to a meeting of a Bible society at, uh, on, on Aldersgate Street in London. And he there heard Martin Luther's explanation of Romans 1.17, the righteous will live by faith, being given. And he himself was converted. He preached as a result of that conversion over 40,000 sermons. He converted his brother Charles, who wrote six to 7,000, we're still not exactly sure, hymns. Out of a, and there was a massive revival and awakening, both in Europe and in America, in response to this little book 
that we're going to begin studying today, the book of Romans. Romans is a dangerous book. If you believe it and if you study it, it will change your life. And so we want to look at Romans together. We're going to look um, at the first 15 verses, but I want to look just to begin with uh, at verse 1, where we read Paul's introduction of himself. He is the gospel messenger. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, in, all, in our culture, when we write a letter to people, we put the who it's addressed to at the beginning, dear so-and-so. And then we sign our name at the end, right? You ever get one of those letters in the mail, you're not sure who it's from, and then you, you flip it over to see at the bottom whether you should read it or not? <laughs> right and paul in ancient culture what they did was they addressed they gave the from first and then the to and then the content of the letter and so paul follows that uh that ancient custom and he gives us first of all his name now that wasn't always his name paul was not always his name you remember he had another name earlier in his life he was named after the first king of israel saul Saul, King Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin, just like his namesake, Saul of Tarsus, the man who wrote this letter. But he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, and Jesus gave him a new name. And Jesus said, you're not going to be Saul, you're not going to be, have this exalted kingly name anymore, you're going to get a new name, we're going to call you Small One. We're going to call you Humble. We're going to call you little one paul that's what paul means a lot of people think based on that that paul was fairly short um that he was not a very big impressive guy um in fact first corinthians i think he says that his uh, or actually second corinthians it says you know your letters are weighty in public paul but in in person you're <laughs> you're unimpressive right and he was a little guy was a little guy and paul lives up to his name he 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 in fact over time in his life becomes increasingly humble over time he starts out by introducing himself in one of his letters as the least of the apostles and then less than later in another letter less than the least of the apostles not even worthy to be called an apostle and then by the end of his life he refers to himself as chief of sinners. And he's a humble guy. And his humility increases over time. In fact, you see his humility in the very next words of his introduction where he says, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now I want you to t take and write in your Bible, cross out the word servant and write the word slave. Because that's the word that's there. Doulos to Christu, a servant of Christ, a slave of Jesus, a slave. And there's a difference between slaves and servants, amen? Like if you're a wealthy guy, has a big house, lots of money, maybe you get yourself a groundskeeper, a butler, a maid, you know, a valet, you know, whatever, okay? 
uh, you get, you get a, a, a staff accumulated, right? Hopefully you get British guys so you can be really snooty, right? And then uh, you have these servants, but they are on the payroll, right? And they have to do what you tell them to do because if, you do, if they don't do it, you will stop paying them, right? A slave is different. A slave is someone that you own and they have to do your, your will because you are the master and you belong to them. And that's the word Paul uses. He says, I belong to Christ. He owns me. I am his slave. He owns me. And the, what the master, the task that the master has given him is the task of apostle. An apostle was someone who had to meet high qualifications. They had to be someone who had seen the ministry of Jesus while Jesus was alive. Had to be someone who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. Now, as a consequence, there are no apostles today. There are not any. There cannot be any, because there aren't any more any people around who have seen Jesus' ministry while he was here on earth in the flesh, and there are not any people who have seen Jesus raised from the dead. If you think you might qualify as an apostle, see me afterwards, we'll talk, okay? And I will try to convince you that biblically you do not qualify, nor does anyone who is currently alive today. But he is called to be an apostle, and Paul's job, and Paul, by the way, got his apostleship in a very unusual way. He witnessed the ministry of Jesus, not as a follower, but as an opponent, and then saw the resurrected Jesus, not when the other disciples did, on Sunday morning, when Jesus walked out of the tomb, on Resurrection Sunday, but on the Damascus Road, after Jesus had ascended to heaven. He saw the resurrected Christ. But he got this job, and his job is to, is that to be set apart for the gospel of God. He is Christ's slave. He is to be an apostle in that role who spreads the gospel. Paul didn't simply save Paul and then give him a new name, and then set him up as a museum exhibit. See, I can even save my opponents. He gave him a task and a role and a job to do and a message to spread. And he continues by telling us what that message is. Gives us the gospel message. Uh, verses 2 to, two to 4. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, a lot of people think that, that the Bible's basic storyline is this, that God created us and then we got into sin and so God was mad at us for thousands of years and then he had a son and he kind of mellowed out. Right? That that's the basic outline of the Bible. But 
that is not exactly, precisely what the Bible is true. That is not, that is not an accurate view. If you look closely at verse 2, and its connection to the end of verse 1, you'll see that Paul is telling us that the gospel message is not some new thing. That the message that Paul is proclaiming is not a Johnny-come-lately idea that he has come up with all on his own. I've got to save these Gentiles, so I've got to tell them something, so I'm going to tell them this, and I'm going to call it the gospel. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the gospel message is the same message that was proclaimed and present as a promise in the Old Testament, which Paul refers to here as the Holy Scriptures. There isn't another scripture to refer to at this point. So it's the Old Testament that he means. He's saying God promised beforehand the things we proclaim about Christ in the Old Testament. And God, and he's exactly right, God promised in Genesis chapter 3, as soon as man fell into sin, God offered a plan of salvation. So from the very beginning, as soon as there was the first need for salvation, God promised salvation would come. And he promised a Messiah. And then as you read through your Old Testament, you get more and more clarification as to who the Messiah is going to be and where he's going to come from and what he's going to do when he's here. And ultimately, you also get promises about the fact that he is going to have two comings, a first one and a second one. The first one to deal with sin and the second to establish a kingdom of those whom he has saved by grace through faith. And it's expanded on and clarified all through the Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Malachi. In fact, the, the last verses of Malachi are talking about the coming of a forerunner who's going to announce the Messiah's coming. And then the first thing you get in the Gospels is the forerunner, John the Baptist, showing up to tell people, here's the Messiah that all of the Old Testament talked about. And when he came, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises. He is God's son, just like David testified that he would be in Psalm 110. He is the descendant of David, just like the Old Testament prophesied that he would be. In fact, the text here is very earthy language that it uses. It says, it says that Jesus is ek spermatos David, from the seed of David. In other words, they're trying to get very clear, Paul's trying to get very clear on the fact that Jesus is a fully human descendant of David. That he has a fully human nature, but that he is also God's son. How do you know he's God's son, Paul? Because we know he's God's son because he is declared with power by the Holy Spirit who raised him from the dead. Dead men do not rise, amen? Anybody ever, like, you know, been down to Chili City Cemetery and, like, seen a guy, like, tunnel his way out? No, it does not happen. Why? Because once you're dead, you're dead. And you do not get out of the tomb unless you are the Son of God. And if you are the Son of God, 
then that identity is proven by the fact that you do not stay dead. Now, there's an old story from the days of the French Revolution. I heard this, and I laughed. I thought it was great fun. Um, there was a, a, an old French bishop. His name was Talleyrand. And Talleyrand is kind of the, if you know about him historically, uh, he, he was a guy that kind of blew with the wind. He was kind of the ultimate politician, right? Uh, and, uh, in fact, when Napoleon was crowned, Talleyrand became one of his courtiers. And he's like, he's like, and Napoleon asked him, you know, how many administrations have you served under? He goes, yours is the 12th, sire. <laughs> okay. He was very flexible on what, what he was willing to endorse. And, and during the French Revolution, there were these revolutionaries that decided that they wanted to get themselves up a new religion. They wanted to throw Christianity over the side and create a new religion based on reason and on the worship of humanity and the encouragement of treating one another kindly. And they were having a lot of trouble with this. They're having trouble getting enough converts to get their new religion going. Uh, and bowing down to the goddess reason just wasn't winning a whole lot of, they weren't getting a lot of, a lot of support for this. And so one of the guys trying to do this, uh, a man named Lepo, uh, goes to Talleyrand for advice. And he says, I want to get some new converts to my new religion. How do I do it? And Talleyrand said back to him, it's very simple. Preach, uh, preach the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. Get yourself crucified and rise again three days later. You'll have no trouble <laughs> getting new followers, right? You'll have no trouble. If you just get yourself crucified and rise from the dead, be no problem. You can get all the followers you want. And his point was this. That nobody can do that but Jesus. And the only reason Jesus can do that is because he is the Son of God. And this, these verses, verses 2 to 4, are the gospel message in a nutshell. That God kept his promises and sent the Messiah. And the Messiah is Jesus, the Son of David, a fully human, fully God person who died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead, thereby proving his identity and proving that God had accepted the payment made on our behalf. If Jesus' payment was insufficient for our sins, he would have remained in the grave. But since he rose from the dead, we know not only that he is the Son of God, but also that our sins are fully paid. This is the gospel message that Paul proclaimed. And it's the same message that we are entrusted with as well. So, question for you. Just for a second. Do you believe this message? Do you believe this? Because it's not enough to, to acknowledge that certain historical facts about the person of Jesus. Amen? That Jesus was a guy who was born in a manger, announced by angels, worshipped by shepherds, worshipped by wise men who gave, came and gave gifts, who died on the cross and rose from the grave. Those are all true things. 
But that's not what I'm asking you. I'm not asking you if you acknowledge historical reality to be true. What I'm asking you is if you believe this in your own heart. If you believe that Jesus Christ, when He died, died on the cross, not just for the world, but for your sins. As your substitute. To bring you new life. So that when, just as He was raised from the dead on the day when He returns, you will be raised from the dead too. As we sang, we will rise if we believe this. Amen? We will rise. Uh, and you, by the way, are entrusted with the same message Paul had uh, to carry this message to the world. And so he gives us in verses 5 through 15 what I'm calling the gospel method. He says this, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome." Now, in verses 5 and 6 here, Paul gives us the most critical component of his method of sharing the gospel. And it's God's grace. And I think that Paul means he has received his calling as an apostle and the power to do his job of spreading the gospel that he has just been describing. That he received these things from God as a gift. In other words, the gospel did not spread because of Paul's effort. But through God's empowerment of Paul's proclamation. But don't miss this either. It's also a critical component of our obedience too. We don't simply crank up our obedience out of our own resources. In fact, we don't even share the gospel by ourselves. We rely on God's grace. Amen? We aren't apostles, but we possess the same power that Paul did through God's grace. We don't rely on ourselves and on our own energy. We rely on the Lord who gave us the gospel and who gave us his instructions and who gave us all of the things in his word as a gift and it is by that same grace that we walk in obedience to the things he has told us 
And so just because Paul had a job to do didn't mean that, that God essentially said, well, Paul, you're saved now, and so now go do what I told you to do, and you're on your own. No, he continued to give grace to do what was necessary. And, and Paul, Paul tells us here that he, the grace that he received was of a kind that brought about the obedience of faith. Can I just tell you, I love that phrase, the obedience of faith. Because faith in Christ doesn't mean simply believing that the gospel message is true. It means that you follow Christ and you acknowledge Him and submit to Him as Master and as Lord over your life. It means that you no longer have your own life, but you now belong to Christ. Amen? And you are His slave, and that obedience results from faith. That if you possess genuine faith, then you will enact genuine obedience. The obedience of faith. And that is what God is doing in all of the nations, according to Paul here. That he is bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. In other words, for his own glory and exaltation in not just us, but in all of the nations of the entire world. So that Somalis and uh and Indonesians, and Kenyans, and Americans, and Canadians, and Mexicans, and Dominicans, and all people over all the earth would bring God glory through the obedience of faith. That that is why the gospel went out. That is why God supplied the grace to proclaim it. That is why God supplies the grace necessary to believe it. That is why all this is happening is that all nations might give God glory. And it's all empowered by God's grace. Now, Paul gives an example of people who are recipients of God's grace in verse 7. When he addresses the letter, finally, and we find out who it's to, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. A, which is, a, I think, a beautiful description. God saved us because he loved us. And more than that, he saved us to make us saints. Now, and I don't know what your background is. In some traditions, I know that they refer to certain people, specific people, maybe the really nice people in the church, uh, as saints, Right? But that's not how the Bible uses the word. The Bible uses the word saints to refer to all of God's people. It's a noun, it's a noun that's connected to the word for holiness. If you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, He intends to make you what, this, what, what the word in Greek is hagias, holy. He intends to make you holy. And he uses the, the word 
for holiness to indicate what kind of people he has in mind. God's holy people. People who look like him. And as a result of the salvation that we have, we can claim that identity no less than the original recipients of this letter. That we are loved by God. How do we know we're loved by God? Because he saved us. And he saved us in order to make us his saints. And so then they receive, as a result of their salvation, grace from God and peace with God. How do I get God's grace? You can't get it. It's given to you as a gift. And then you have, as a result, peace with God. That you and God are no longer at war. You are no longer in rebellion against him because he has brought you into relationship with him. And so grace and peace are yours from God the Father and from your Lord Jesus Christ. Through the sacrifice of Christ, we have grace and peace from God. Now, if you look at verses 8 to 15, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but what he's doing in those verses is outlining the second component to his method, which is what I would call a gospel partnership. That Paul, this is Romans, believe it or not, is a missionary letter. Paul is wanting to go to Rome and to preach to those people and to share his gifts with them and then to have them send him on to Spain. And there's a partnership that he has envisioned. He says, I'm going to come and bless you all with the gifts that I have and also be blessed by you. So he talks about mutual encouragement about how I've been praying for you, just like I know you've been praying for me. And, and he says, we're going to be mutually encouraged and I'm going to benefit you and then I want you to benefit me so that I can go off and spread the gospel further with your help. So that there's a mutual partnering in the gospel. That the gospel, in other words, is not something that we simply spread on our own, although we are called to do that. It's also something that we spread together. That as a body of Christ, we spread the gospel together, and we all pull together, and we all engage in partnership in the gospel together. So sometimes, you know, we have missionaries, as an example, that come back and see us, and they are spreading the gospel in places many of us will never see apart from in pictures. And we support them and we pray for them and we encourage them. And that's part of a gospel partnership with them in places that we cannot go. And in the same way, we hear from them and, and we receive their prayers and their encouragement back to us. And they build us up in our faith as as they are proclaiming the gospel over there, we are supporting them over here. But their, their support, our support for them is not one-sided. It comes back to us as well, as we mutually encourage and build up one another. You know, this works the same way, by the way, with, with internal-type ministries that we do that are evangelistic intentionally. So, like, as an example... You know, we're, uh, we're getting ready in a couple months to have a wild game feast. And we're bringing in a speaker to come and share the gospel with us. 
and 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 we're going to bring guys from the community and women from the community and kids from the community into this place and we're going to have some fun we're going to eat some some wild and wonderful food and have a great time and we're going to share the gospel with them now who gets credit for sharing the gospel we do it won't be just larry moyer that shared the gospel with those folks It'll be all of us who participated together in doing that. Amen? When we gather for Awana, and let's say that Karen is teaching, as she often does, uh, the TNT kids, and we have some kids who uh, come to faith in Christ as a result. Who gets credit for sharing the gospel? We do, as a church. Because it's a partnership, and all parts of that are necessary. You understand what I'm saying? It's a gospel partnership that we work together to bring the gospel to the world. Just as Paul is working with the church in Rome, we also work together to bring the gospel to the world. Through missionaries, through domestic ministry, through all the things that we do, we are proclaiming the gospel. Now, we've seen Paul here in this, in this section identify himself as the gospel messenger. And we've had heard him tell us the gospel message. And we've observed his gospel method. But we are not reading these things simply so we can be more educated about Paul. We are wanting to not just know about his ministry, but also know more about ours. Amen? About what we're to do with this and i recognize that none of us are apostles certainly not me not any of you either all right none of us are apostles um, but our job is very similar to his the task that we are called to uh, that god that god gave us through jesus christ at the end of matthew is the same job of proclaiming the gospel to all the nations of the world so, let me ask you, how you doing on fulfilling your calling? Because you were not called to be an apostle, but you were called to be a saint. So it's a person loved by God, a person who has a job to do, and that job is to make Christ known in the world. How you doing on that? Let me ask you a few evaluatory questions here as we close. Okay? Number one, do you recognize yourself as being, like Paul, a slave of Christ? Do you recognize yourself as the slave of Christ? When you put your trust in Christ, did you recognize at that point, or sometime since then, that your life is not your own anymore? That you are not here simply to enjoy God's blessings and to do whatever it is that you think we would like to do. That you are the slave of Christ. And you're given a task. And that task is to make Jesus Christ known. Do you recognize yourself as the slave of Christ? Second question, do you partner with people who go to places that you can't, both financially and in prayer? 
One of the things I'm, I'm, I am very proud of our church on is the fact that we do support a great number of missionaries. And we support them both in places here locally as well as domestically as well as places that we will never go, most of us. Hard places. Places with weird languages and, and strange religious customs and so forth that, that will be very, very difficult to go and serve in. And we send people into those with our prayers and with our giving and with our encouragement because they are our partners in the gospel. Are they your partners in the gospel? Because we want to do this together, all of us. Not just the super spiritual, not just a few of us, but all of us partner in the gospel with people who go to places we can't. If you need some suggestions on that, I can make some good ones. Talk to Rick Rosetto. Talk to Cindy. Uh, go visit our missions table. Okay, You can partner with a number of people and spread the gospel far beyond your own little corner of the world. But you also have a calling yourself to go into the world with the gospel. Are you taking the gospel to where you are? I know that takes all kinds of forms and, and looks different depending on what kind of job you have or what your role is. But in your neighborhood, in your family, in your job, in your community, are you the ambassador of Christ with the gospel to the world? Do you share the gospel when you have opportunities? Let me just tell you something about the results of our gospel partnership over the last three years. I don't know if you know this or not, but I've, I've kept track. Um, our 2018 by 2018 goal, we have, we have reached, according to the most recent tally, I have 1,203 people in our community with the gospel. And we've done that through things like Awana and youth group and mops and funerals. Believe it or not, funerals are a great place to preach the gospel. They really are. I love when I get those calls. Can you come preach this funeral? Yes, I can. They don't have a pastor or a church. Is that okay? Yes, that's fine. I'll go. Okay. Um, we have... We have proclaimed the gospel as a church. We have done it eyeball to eyeball. If you, you know, if you talk to Mark Swanson with his evangelism explosion, he equipped a whole bunch of us to go out into communities and sit down eyeball to eyeball with people and share the gospel with them. And we've done that. We've done that with a lot of people. I got to do it with a couple. I sat down with Kathy Wright and Cheryl Baker in the, in the home of this couple and they were going to church somewhere in town, somewhere else. And I sat down with them in their living room, and I shared the gospel with them. And they said, we've never heard this before. And they believe in their living room, right over on Cloverdale Road. 
And these are the results of our gospel partnership. Amen? That we work together to share the gospel in our community. And it's an amazing, beautiful thing. And we are called to participate in it, and we get to do this as the servants of Christ. Amen? We get to do this. Not just something that is our responsibility, it's also our privilege. Amen? Well, here at the beginning of a new year, it's a good time to think about what you're going to do with your calling this year. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get to, we are privileged to be able to, to have the calling to share the gospel with the world, just as Paul did, just as the Roman church did as they partnered with him. Father, help us to partner together, help us to band together as a church to make the gospel prominent in our community to make jesus famous in our world and father i pray that 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 you would use us that through us the gospel might be proclaimed and the obedience of faith might be accomplished in people of all nations and father we pray in jesus name amen